So math is kind of weird. Um, it's a, <laughs> some time ago I, I realized it's like the area of human knowledge where we're really, really sure it's true, but have no idea what it means. Like, we know that these the theorems, you know, they're true, right? I mean, we've got proofs of them. I mean, we've got as good evidence of them as of pretty much anything. But what they actually mean and what makes them true, what they're about, seems really mysterious, right? So we're really sure that there are infinitely many prime numbers, but we have no idea what numbers are. But there are infinitely many of them, right? Um, so you think about other areas, right? So in, in other are in areas of science, right? Uh, geology, chemistry, biology, uh, non-fundamental physics, uh, we pretty much have a feel like we know what we're talking about. Um, but we are not quite as sure that it's true as we are in mathematics. We would be, you know, so there's some things that we are fairly confident of, but even those things, you know, like that there are tectonic plates, that we are we are more confident of the Pythagorean theorem than of those. Um, since ancient times, there's lots of stuff we've known in mathematics, um, and that stuff has needed very little revision. Occasionally, some, you know, we realized they forgot some axiom in their, in their proofs, but uh, we fill that in and it's there. Um, but even though we've known all this stuff for a long time, we still have not made much progress on figuring out what the math is about, what, say, numbers are. So we've got like this, the, the truth of it is, is uncontroversial. On the other hand, the meaning of it is deeply mysterious. And at the same time, it's, uh, it's really useful. And it's not easy. And that, 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 it, that it's not easy actually has some significance, right? Because if, if it, it suggests that there's something objective there, if it was just something we just made up completely, then it should be fairly easy. You just go and you know, say what you, what, what you feel like and you've got it. So I'm going to say a little bit about these issues and connect them with science and give you some sort of uh, insights that I like from Augustine, Aquinas, and Galileo. And maybe a bit of Leibniz. So start with uh, this mystery um, from the point of view of Platonism, right? So Plato famously thought that we've got this physical world of change and so on, but then there's another world that is, he says, more real, but at least is real, the world of forms, right? Our world has only imperfection, it doesn't have equality, it doesn't have circles, it doesn't have triangles, it doesn't have straight lines, it has stuff like that. Sometimes a little better approximating than that, but still not, you know, still uh, infinitely far from perfection. Uh, but the Platonic world has the real thing, right? The real circles and the real numbers and uh, lines and all these other things and then you know, stuff that Plato didn't talk about, like vector spaces and division rings and stuff like that. So we've got these things, these mathematical objects existing fully, really, a, at least as really as the stuff around us and ourselves. Now this approach, this view, raises three sort of well-known mysteries in the philosophy of math. One, what are these strange entities? I mean, 
Okay, so we could say they're real, but that's not saying very much. I mean, everything's real. I mean, everything that exists is real. Um, what are they? Um, secondly, we're evolved apes. How do we somehow get access to this platonic world and know about it? And not just know, not merely speculatively, but with near certainty. We're being about as certain of it, those things in there, as we are pretty much anything else. And then the third mystery here is why is it that thinking about these things that are in this other world is at all useful for, you know, building airplanes and, uh, and electronics and uh, throwing uh, or shooting rocks from cannons and stuff like that. So, why is this stuff useful? So it's basically, I mean, the puzzle comes from the fact that they're like really, you know, sort of in this it's a completely different kind of thing, it seems, from the stuff around us. And yet somehow we have knowledge of them and they're useful. Well, you know, platonic theories are not the only ones. This is, this is not going to be a survey of all the different theories, uh, philosophical views of mathematics, but just sort of roughly speaking, you've got sort of on the other extreme from the platonic theories, you've got what people call deflationary theories, um, which instead of, you know, making this uh, uh, mathematics be about these really impressive, uh, super real things, it makes it less mis mathematics less mysterious and hence most access more accessible to apes. Um, one version of this is uh, log was logicism. So logic, the logicists thought mathematics was really basically just logic. In mathematics, we just study what can be proved from axioms. So you say, okay, here's a bunch of assumptions. What can we prove from these assumptions? Um, and so we're not asking whether the assumptions are true or whether the things we prove are true. We're just asking, does this, what follows? So, you know, we don't say the Pythagorean theorem is true. We just say that it follows from the axioms of uh, Euclidean geometry. Um, so we don't have to worry whether the axioms are true or false. We don't have to worry whether numbers exist and what they are. We just say, okay, well, if we've got something that satisfies these assumptions, like there's a first, there's a, some entity which we can call zero, and for every entity there's a next one, and then it satisfies a bunch of other axioms, Oh, then, then Fermat's last theorem holds. So we can, we, can, we, we can say stuff like that, and we don't really care whether there actually is such a thing as zero or whether each thing has a successor. Um, we, this would be great. I mean, it, it really makes this stuff much more down to earth and simple. Unfortunately, um, uh, Gettle, Kurt Gettle, the great 20th century logician, came along and showed a number of two famous theorems, the incompleteness theorems, that kind of destroy the logicist project. Um, one of them tells us that basically there are things that are true in uh, mathematics that cannot be proved. And that means that mathematics isn't just about what can be proved from what, what but that there seem to be mathematical truths that go beyond that. And secondly, I think much 
and much more, I think, from my point of view, interestingly, he showed that the kinds of puzzles you have as to what it means to have something true in mathematics apply just as much to the question of what follows from what. That that's just as mysterious, really, as uh, truths about what follows from what are just as mysterious in a or almost as mysterious in a precise sense as truths about um, numbers. Um, we can get into that in the discussion if we need to. But basically, this kind of delta death blow to logicism. You can try other things. You could talk about, you know, maybe think mathematical entities are mental uh, fictions, the stuff that just exists in our minds, like Sherlock Holmes, uh, who has some kind of mental reality. Um, if we do that, we get this puzzle, why this stuff is useful. I mean, it, you know, studying Sherlock Holmes is, you know, has a little bit of inspirational use for a detective. You know, you maybe work for a police department, you get inspired a little bit by, by reading about Sherlock Holmes, but it's not very useful in day-to-day -day practice. And if, you, and if mathematics is similarly made up, it would be, it's very strange why it turns out to be. Okay. Well, that's, the, that's two words in the title, right, of this talk, or two significant words, mathematics. The other one was beauty. And, um, you know, it seems like mathematics can be beautiful. Um, and uh, I, maybe there's more than these three, but I kind of thought of, there's sort of three, way, three kinds of beauty I found in mathematics, and I just thought about it. One is you've got beautiful mathematical objects, typically generated by simple rules or having simple descriptions, right? Um, some of them are visually beautiful, some of them are sort of, have a kind of abstract, unspeakable kind of beauty where you express them, but there's a sort of inner beauty to the concept. Um, second kind of thing is there's, uh, besides beautiful mathematical objects, there's like uh, beautiful mathematical facts. Like it's a, just such a lovely fact that there are only five platonic solids, only five regular solids where, you know, all the, it, it, they're the same at every vertex. They look the same from, every, from the point of view of every vertex and every face is the same. They're only five. I mean, why? I mean, you might think, I'd be not surprised if there's like zero or one or infinity, but five, that's... That's just super cool. <laughs> um, or, and lots of other sort of lovely mathematical facts, you know, like every natural number can be written as a, a uniquely as a product of primes. All sorts of just sort of seems like lovely coincidences of some sort. A polynomial of degree n has exactly n solutions, um, counting multiplicities. There's just something uh, great about this stuff. And the third kind is uh, perhaps, you know, rarely appreciated by people who are not uh, really into mathematics. I mean, the, picture, the pretty pictures, you can kind of, you know, are kind of impressive. Maybe some of the mathematical facts are kind of impressive. But what's also, what I think mathematicians often find really beautiful is proofs. And they say, this is like a beautiful proof. There's like this, uh, uh, the, the Hungarian mathematician uh, Paul Erdos had this image of a heavenly book which has the best proofs of every theorem written down in it. And, and he would talk, of, we people, mathematicians, some of us say, this proof is from the book. 
it's not just a proof, you know, that sort of where you have plug things into algebra, manipulate things for pages and pages of messy notation. No, it's just lovely, like this great old proof of why uh, there is no biggest prime. Um, there's just something beautiful about certain mathematical groups. Okay. All right. So what's going on here? Why is mathematics so beautiful? Well, one kind of, one answer to this question, why, so I, I mean, right, this is, it's beautiful. Why? Well, one solution is, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is something subjective, right? Um, a nice little refutation, right? Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Everybody knows this is way more beautiful than this. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, suppose even it were true, though. Suppose that you're not convinced by my drawing and, uh, and you think uh, actually maybe it is subjective. That nothing doesn't quite answer everything about the beauty of mathematics. Um, we are evolved apes. Why did we evolve to find mathematics beautiful? I mean, yes, maybe, maybe hunter-gatherers a uh, hundred thousand years ago did some very basic mathematics, like noticing that maybe, you know, three animals went into some some place behind some trees and two came out and concluded that there was one left there. Um, but that's so different, so far and so different from the kind of beauty of mathematics that we've uh, discovered since the time of the ancient Greeks, that any kind of evolutionary pressure to recognize the beauty of mathematics that would apply to the super simple mathematics, you just wouldn't expect that to apply to um, this stuff. So why do we evolve to find mathematics beautiful? I just doubt that our ancient forebears saw mathematical beauty of the three kinds we're talking about. Um, and if they didn't see it, then seeing it wouldn't have helped them to gain mates. You might still wonder whether it helps us gain mates in our time. <laughs> you could do this empirical study, right? Do you, like, do math majors, are they more likely to find mates, for example? I have no idea how that would come out. But I don't think among these people it would really help much to, rec be, to have this capacity for recognizing mathematical beauty when there actually isn't enough mathematics known to see the beauty. So I just don't think it would help. At best, it's what like evolutionary theorists would call, I think, a spandrel, where you have something, you've got some kind of natural selection explanation of some feature, and as a sort of side effect of that, you get some little bonus something, a little extra that just doesn't have any real purpose on its own, but happens to just come out. So maybe, you know, there's some kind of, you know, you could just make up stuff, right? I mean, you shouldn't ideally, but, but I'm not a biologist, I'm just going to make up stuff. You know, maybe there's like something about recognizing the colors of fruit and a side effect of having the brain structures that help you recognize the colors of yummy fruit makes you sensitive to the beauty of mathematics. You know, it's just kind of this side effect has no significance at all. Um, if so, then the, the beauty of mathematics is just a meaningless pleasure. It's, it's really kind of a sort of random kind of drug. Um, and beso but besides that, um, I think it, there's a kind of something philosophically unsatisfying here, because 
if the beauty of mathematics, if our ability, if the beauty of mathematics is purely subjective, and our ability to recognize it is just kind of a, a, a side effect uh, of uh, evolving for something else, why is it that our search for mathematical, for beautiful mathematics, is uh, so useful to us? I mean, not all of it, but so much of it is useful to us. I mean, it, that seems very strange that uh, this thing that seems to have on this story evolved for some completely random, th uh, for some reason completely unconnected with it, um, ends up being extremely, so extremely useful. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's, let, let me stick to the usefulness for a bit. And so, physics, since the time at, at least of Copernicus, has been kind of ruled by beautiful, elegant, and simple mathematical theories. And I'm going to focus mostly on physics. The beauty of other sciences, I think, is a little bit different from physics, maybe sometimes a lot different. They're, the biologists are not so much interested in simplicity, for example. They're though I think there is a kind of beauty and simplicity in what they're doing, but it's a different kind from the one in physics. I'm going to focus on the physics. So, you know, you've got beautiful, elegant, simple mathematical theories, right? Um, you know, things go around the sun in perfect circles. Beautiful theories. Um, people, you know, were kind of attracted to these theories, even when they didn't actually fit their data so well. I mean, the Copernican system, people loved it. Uh, or some people, a number of scientists loved it, like Galileo and Copernicus, obviously, um, because it's just so elegantly simple as opposed to the opposed system where you've got, you know, this, the, the Earth and then things moving around, not in circles around the Earth, but in circles that move around circles around circles there. Um, but it actually, you know, when Galileo and Copernicus were writing their stuff, and those theories were fitted the data less well than the old Earth-centered theories. But they were more beautiful. And so they made a gamble that this is, this is, this is the way to go. And that gamble paid off. I mean, it had to be modified. I mean, part of the reason their theories didn't fit the data so well is because they were so focused on beauty that they actually went for perfect circles, where the answer was ellipses. But close to circles, except for Pluto. So, simple theories have ruled physics. Simple th theories are never, in practice, the best fit to the data, right? So here's, you know, some data. Datum, 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 and datum. You know, uh, Here's a perfect fit to the data, is this polynomial that goes through the very center of every point. Um, you show, right, the, these little circles to, to a scientist, and they say, I guess, I guess uh, it, the reality must be governed by a, this law of nature right here. <laughs> because it fits the data so perfectly. And they will laugh. Uh, or maybe if they're in, you know, kinder to you, they'll say something. You should read something about overfitting. Right? So everybody knows that, right, that what, when we've got these points, um, it, when we, the better theory is the line. 
here, even though that line does not actually fit a single point. Or here's another one. This is a, I have a new theory of gravity that nobody, as far as I know, has ever proposed other than me, and it fits the data as well as I think, I haven't checked, I've done the calculation, but I have enough zeros here. But I think it fits the data as well as Newton's theory. And it's this, the force is G M1, M2 divided by R to this power. Now, the, 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 this theory is ridiculous, right? We have this theory here, and this is a much better theory, but it doesn't fit the data any better. I mean, they're so close together, just beyond our experimental abilities, and if that's not right, then they have more zeros. Um, people for, you know, we don't anymore think this, we have a more complicated relativity theory story, um, but this is a better approximation to the relativity theory story than this is. But back in the day, you know, like in Newton's day, you know, people thought this, and they were right to think this, rather than to think this. Why were they right to think it? It has something to do with beauty. This is the more beautiful one. This is the more elegant one. This would kind of intuitively make sense. Um, if you think, you know, so gravity is this influence that spreads out and spreading out is kind of like the square of the radius and things like that. Um, but if this is just, you know, if this beauty here is just kind of a mere uh, preference, subjective preference we have, um, then why should we think the universe fits with our preferences? I mean, why should we be so much more confident of this than of this? So this is the topic, right? Beautiful mathematics is useful. And why, and its usefulness seems to have something to do with the fact that it describes the world. So the puzzle is why does beautiful mathematics describe the world? Okay. So let me move on to the three figures that I, will, that I want to talk about. First, we go to the 4th, 5th century AD to St. Augustine. So, St. Augustine was kind of philosophically raised as a Platonist, but he was not fully satisfied with Platonism. He wanted to know where these Platonic objects, like mathematical objects, like, what is this world? Where do they live? Like, what is this? Where is this? Thing. And so he, had, he came up with this theory that uh, the forms, the platonic entities, were ideas in the mind of God. And he has this, uh, this kind of tamed the infinity of the numbers. What do I mean by that? He has this remark uh, that, uh, in a sense, the numbers are finite. Which is strange, uh, a, a strange idea, right? I mean, he full well knew that for any, you know... Uh, positive integer, there's, uh, there's one plus that integer. He wasn't denying that. Um, what I think he, what I, he was getting at is the idea that sort of the fundamental na nature of the, the finite, the sort of, there's a kind of, there's the, like the mathematical finite, and that's not what he's talking about. There's a kind of philosophical finite, which just means kind of bounded, contained in something, constrained by something else, comprehended in something else. And so he thought the numbers, 
are in God's mind. So they are comprehended by something larger than itself. And so they are not really... Um, so there's a sense in which they're, they've got a kind of bound that keeps them in their place. Um, I once read this uh, book manuscript that unfortunately has never been published. I don't even know if a copy exists anymore because the author has died and I wrote to his family and they couldn't get them to find me a copy of it anymore. But he was like an old retired professor when I was a math grad student, uh, Z.A. Melzack. He also wrote some books that were published, really fun math books if any of you are math students. Z.L. Melzack has got like these books on math that is usually not taught in math classes, but was done in past centuries. Really cool stuff, actually. Um, anyway, so he, he has a book on the history of math, and he's not, I don't think he was a Christian. Um, I don't know if he had any religious views. Um, if he was um, a Holocaust survivor, ethnically Jewish, but I don't know if he had any if he was religiously Jewish or not. But in his book, he, was, he argues that um, the Greeks uh, were hampered in their mathematics by the fact that they were kind of afraid of infinity. Like, if you look at ancient Greek writers, there's a kind of the apeiron, the infinite, the unbounded, um, the, it's kind of indefinite, foggy, and kind of, yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, you have one of pre-Socratic philosophy wants to sort of found everything in that, but generally it's kind of, they, they thought it was kind of yucky, kind of vague and imprecise and uh, squishy, and I think they didn't like it. Um, it sort of stretched out, you know, beyond bounds, as it were. And so Melzack thinks that uh, as a sort of historical uh, fact, uh, because Christians were able to think of uh, numbers as something in the mind of God, the concept of, of mathematical infinity was one that uh, was much more, that they were much more amenable to. And so you could, you, and so he felt like that uh, Christianity was actually important to the growth of calculus. I, I don't know if this is true, but it's, I thought it was an interesting historical theory. Um, the Augustine's theory has something very nicely in common with the mind-dependent theory. The mind-dependent theory is that mathematics is just about stuff, about thoughts. The problem with that is that it just leads to subjectivism. It makes you wonder, why should our stuff that just exists in our mind, like Sherlock Holmes, have any bearing on the world around us and be object have any kind of objectivity to it? Well. The difference is that on Augustine's theory, it's, my, it's dependent on the mind, but it's the mind of God. And that's an unchanging, eternal, necessary mind, and the mind of the being that creates things. Right? So, you, know, you might think, you know, Sherlock Holmes, learning about Sherlock Holmes may not help you much as a, as a detective, um, but what if the world was created by some, the same person who had the thought of Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> What if Arthur Conan Doyle created our world? Then quite possibly knowing about Sherlock Holmes would actually be helpful to police work because our psychology would probably be so constructed as to fit with the psychology of villains in Sherlock Holmes and so on. Um, so I think if, it's, if, it's, if mathematics is grounded in the mind of God and it's the same God who creates the world, it wouldn't be surprising that it would be useful. Okay, I think this yields answers to many of the sort of questions I've been raising.
Second insight for a second author, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. And this one answers a puzzle I haven't quite raised yet. You know, I said at the beginning, you know, we're really sure of our math. Yeah, we can prove stuff. How do we do this? How do we know this math? We know it by logic. At the same time, we also know from Gettle that mathematics isn't just logic. But there's some connection between them. Logic is a good way to get mathematics, right? Um, if you can logically prove something from something true, then the thing you've proved is also going to be true. Why? How does the whole thing work? Well, Thomas Aquinas, I think, has two insights that are relevant here, actually. I call them paired insight. Um, one of them is that he has an answer to this philosophical question of what is possibility? What does it mean for something to be possible as opposed to impossible? And the answer is, you know, so you can think of, you know, two, pl uh, uh, two plus two equaling five is impossible. A circle that is a square is, is impossible. On the other hand, a world populated entirely by intelligent unicorns and God is possible. What's the difference? Um, the difference for Thomas is uh, God's power. Things are possible if they're within God's power. That's what makes them be possible. And God's power extends how far? Precisely to the things that are logically coherent. And that do not have a lot, in some sense, of logical contradiction. So, if this is right, if Thomas is right about these two claims, then logic you can think of as a study of God's power. It's a very a sort of weird way, maybe, of thinking of logic. But it is, I think it's, it makes a sense. Um, God's mathematical ideas, then, would be ideas about what arrangements of things are within God's power. So maybe there aren't any perfect, there aren't any circles in the world, but they're within God's power. God couldn't have made circles. Interesting question why he did it, if God exists. But that's so logic and mathematics are intertwined because logic is a study of God's power. Even if it doesn't look like it. You know, because you know the logician, the logician, even the uh, the uh, Thomistic logician doesn't just uh, you know keep on mentioning God in their logic. They just do logic like anybody else does. It does logic, you know, you prove things and set up postulates and systems and so on. But somewhat deep down, this is supposed to be all about God's power. Third figure, this one doesn't have a saint in front of his name <laughs> for historical reasons that I think you guys are familiar with. <laughs> Galileo. Actually, there may be other reasons, like he had an illegitimate child, that, that, that might be a problem. Um, there. Um, so here's Galileo, since this is a very famous quote from him. Uh, Philosophy is written in this grand book which stands continually open before our eyes. By, by philosophy, he here means basically human knowledge. It doesn't just mean the stuff that's done by philosophy departments nowadays. It'll include Basically, you know, what people in the sciences and in philosophy and humanities get is a PhD, a doctorate in philosophy. That's what he means by philosophy. It's human knowledge of the world by human power. So philosophy is written in this grand book which stands continually open before our eyes. I say the universe, in case you weren't clear what he meant, but cannot be understood without first learning to comprehend the language and know the characters 
as it is written. Okay. It is written in mathematical language. And its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures, with without which it is impossible to humanly understand a word. Without these, one is wandering in a dark labyrinth. There's a kind of empirical test of the, this. You know, before Galileo, there was not much of seeing science primarily as a, as a mathematical enterprise. At around the time of Galileo, we have this great focus on it as something written in mathematical language, and suddenly it takes off. Suddenly we have the scientific revolution. We, we've had uh, prefigurings of it in earlier scientists, but suddenly it just sort of starts all going and working out and, and being really useful and very, very fast. It's as if suddenly you start looking at the things the right way. And according to Galileo, that right way is looking at it mathematically. Starting to, you know, attach uh, numbers and formulas to things. Um, to, I mean, people have always done that to some things, but you're trying to do that sort of as a systematic thing throughout science, and especially physics, which is interesting. And so without these, one was wandering in dark labyrinth, but suddenly we have this. Okay. Now, notice this language that Galileo has, right? It's a book, right? Um, there's no word God here in this famous passage, but think about the, uh, the imagery, right? Um, it's a book. Books have authors, right? Um, languages are things that are used by speakers, by thinker, uh, thinkers, right? So he has clearly is thinking here, there is an author here who has a certain language. And once we have learned this author, the language that the author has written the world in, we will start to understand the world. Reading a book, we learn the language of the author as well as the genre that the book has written it. In without these, we can't understand the book. Uh, Galileo's insight, I think, or, I mean, it's not that, I mean, Galileo didn't have somebody else who had, but this insight that, that we need to look in mathematical language makes the scientific revolution possible. And so we have a story as to why elegant mathematics is useful. It's because God used it to write the world. So on this story, the success of the scientific revolution depends on a creator who loves beautiful mathematics and creates a world expressing his intelligence. And that explains why, it all, why mathematics is useful and why it works out. So, now, that means that sort of, as a sort of historic, I think this is like, what I've said so far is, you know, mainly a description of how Galileo thought of this and how we might think about what's going on. But, you know, then what about the fact that we now have lots of atheists who are doing science um, and are not thinking about it this way. Right? They're not thinking about it as a book written by some author in the language of mathematics that most you think this is like a helpful metaphor, maybe, an inspiring metaphor. Um, well, I, I, I guess 
my, my view is that they're cutting the branch they're sitting on. The branch is, it makes, the scientific enterprise makes perfect sense when you look at it as a kind of textual investigation or a text where we finally figured out the language. And when you don't see it that way, why have any confidence that it's all going, that it's going to work out and that the simpler mathematics will be true and that you'll have Newton's law of gravitation rather than Proust's law of gravitation? Um, now, it may be that, you know, you know, this is not a conclusive knockdown argument. It might well be that the atheists, or though they're cutting the branch, the historical branch that they sat on, the branch that built the, uh, the scientific revolution, have found a rope to hold on to or have some other uh, way of staying uh, aloft. That's, you know, we can talk about that during the Q&A and see if, if, that's, if that's right. I'm skeptical of that, but maybe, but there are different things you can say. So we get some answers from these uh, three insights from these three figures. So just to summarize, what are number shaped sets, etc. We can take Augustine's insight that they are ideas in the mind of God. And they're mysterious in a way, but in a way not so mysterious. They're mysterious because they're God's ideas, and God is mysterious, but there's a way in which they're not mysterious because they're ideas, and we have ideas. And so we're familiar with what it is to have ideas and thoughts. So the kind of thing they are is less mysterious, maybe, than on Plato's view, because we can kind of, we, we know what this stuff is. How do we know them? And this was a kind of problem for, for Platonists, uh, because there was this stuff in this other world, and then here we are, have these evolved apes. And how, how do they bridge the gap between this imperfect world here and that? Well, you can get a couple of things here. Draw on Augustine, say, God knows his own ideas. That's sort of, it doesn't seem like super hard to know your own ideas. That doesn't seem very mysterious. You can, just, you, you, uh, you can have uh, introspection. God then creates intelligent beings in his image whose thinking matches the ideas that we think along the same lines that God does in the, in the least respect of the world. Um, and then we can bring in uh, Aquinas' insight that logic is a study of God's power um, and matches it. We can answer why math is worth doing in this kind of interesting kind of way. It's worth doing because it tells us a bit about God's mind, which is a different kind of way of thinking why, why it's worth doing. I mean, there's lots of answers to questions. This is not one where this is like the only answer. There are lots of answers to why math is worth doing. For one, it's useful. But not all math is useful. And there's some math that few mathematicians think is going to turn out to be useful. Stuff dealing with, with very large cardinalities seems unlikely to ever be useful. Maybe it will be, but doesn't seem very likely. But but it, mathematicians still feel uh, that there's something intrinsically worth doing about this stuff, and why? And, and it's like, you know, worth devoting a life to. Why? Well, this is an explanation. It's about the mind of God. Kind of beautiful in that way, right? And that's why it's beautiful. If God is perfectly beautiful, what is a, the mind of God is a beautiful um, kind of interesting little observation if you, if, 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 at some point, somebody told me, um, and then when I heard it, it's obviously right, that the religions love beauty. Sort of look at beautiful artifacts throughout the world, uh, disproportionately they're religious artifacts. 
Um, and, you know, maybe so the religions maybe are on to something as God is perfectly beautiful. So an interesting question, and I, I actually wonder if anybody has any thoughts on this. There is also such a thing as ugly mathematics, too. I mean, some of the mathematicians do proofs that are not from the book. And sometimes it's, we, we, when we do this, we feel kind of, yeah, there's probably better proof in the book, but I just can't find it because I don't have the book. It's in heaven, right? Um, but sometimes you feel, yeah, maybe there actually isn't a better proof of this, right? Um, you know, I can give you a, a math theorem where I bet there isn't a very pretty proof. Um, so here's a, here's a theorem. Let's see. You can prove this, you know, by, uh, as we say, long multiplication, which is a number of boring steps of applying the distributive law for multiplication over addition. The proof is really ugly, and one doubts that there is a pretty one. So that's what I mean kind of by ugly mathematics. The statement isn't particularly pretty, nor is the proof. Um, why, what, what do we say about that? I don't know. I think that's actually a, a kind of interesting question. Uh, maybe it's just part of a larger whole, where the larger whole is beautiful. Maybe it's part of larger beautiful patterns. I don't know. Maybe our sense of beauty is in, imperfect. I don't know. We can ask this question about evolved apes and how they got to have the sense of beauty that applies to math. And then you say, well, yes, we, may, we are evolved apes, but at the same time, you know, we evolved in an environment that was designed by a, an all-powerful being who loves mathematics and who loves the beauty. And it's not surprising that such a being would have set us up so that we might evolve in a way that might seem random and a, and a mere scandal, but nonetheless led us to this kind of beauty. We didn't just luck out. Why does beautiful math describe the universe? Because God is beautiful, creates a world in his image. And maybe also because the beauty of the cosmos can open one up to the beauty of God. It does that for a lot of people. The argument from beauty is one that people find in a way much more personally compelling often as an argument for the existence of God than arguments from sort of the existence of motion and things like that. One more thing. I started with mystery, and I said, you know, found ways of taking away some. But let me put some, you know, uh, come back to mystery, because I think in the end we're going to have mystery. So, at the beginning of the 20th century and the end of the 19th century, we had these, uh, this philosophical movement called positivism. And they, they had an ideal, and this ideal wasn't just found in them, it's sort of every so often it recurs, and the thought was, we're going to find a way of making the world not very mysterious. And so with the positivist, the way you do that is you, you throw out the mysterious stuff, like ethics and aesthetics and God, and you say, what do we, are we left with? We're left with science and mathematics. We can't throw that out, they, they felt. I mean, practically speaking, how do you, you know, so once you're living in the modern world, it's really hard to throw it out. Um, but the thought is, when we've thrown out all the other stuff, what we've got left is not mysterious. What is it? I mean, it's just mathematics is basically just formal logic. It's just moving symbols about according to certain rules to come up with proofs of things. 
Uh, that's all mathematics is. And, and science is really, you know, basically just, you know, particles moving around in empty space. Nothing really deeply mysterious here. Uh, this is kind of, I mean, you can kind of think, on the science side, you can kind of think of, you know, there's like this simple picture we have of the world um, in, say, the 19th century, where we've got these part these, we've got space, and then we've got particles. What are the particles? They're little things, physical things. Uh, they're just moving about. It seems like perfectly comprehensible. And the, the mysteries in theology seem to stand out like a sore thumb. You know, the theologians talk of a being that is three persons and yet uh, one substance. And uh, they talk of infinities contained within a single and indivisible being, indivisible being. Very strange, mysterious stuff. That just doesn't seem like, you know, like that should fit in an age of science where we get this clarity, e easy understanding of everything. Everything's really nice and clear, right? Um, there just seems like no room for theology in this kind of a world. It's almost, I mean, it's a little bit more serious maybe than the Soviet thing that, you know, we sent people into space and we know that there is no heaven because we didn't observe it when we had people going into space. The sort of Sputnik argument against uh, Christianity. This is maybe a little bit more respectable. But I don't know. But, but actually, I think this was not a good way to think. And some of the reasons why it wasn't a good way to think were not available to the positivists. Some already were. One of the ones that came in sort of in the later part of positivism was Gettle's incompleteness theorem that mathematics goes beyond just manipulating symbols. That mathematics is a truth that goes beyond just manipulating symbols. But there's also an older thing sort of, uh, that makes you think there really is mystery there. So you've got like New Newton's has a famous phrase, I don't make hypotheses. What does that refer to? Well, Newton has a law for gravity. That's, you know, it's, it's the one that works, the exponent two. Uh, well, the mine works too. Uh, but it's the, it's the prettier one. And so he's got this thing, but then you wonder, how does this work? You've got two objects with two different masses separated by a distance r, and they instantly exert a force on each other. Somehow the sun is always pulling on the earth. This is kind of mysterious. I mean, Leibniz really kind of ridiculed this. He said, does this mean that the planets have a love for each other and they're pulled to each other by their love for each other? This didn't make much sense. And so Leibniz actually ended up rejecting the, this kind of story. Um, like, what is this mysterious power that pulls them together? We can give it a name. We can call it gravity. But that just is giving a name to something that's just mysterious. Um, and Newton's answer was, well, it's not my job to, uh, at least as a physicist, to really answer this question. But he's not denying that there is a question there and that there's something that would be worth knowing. What is this, what fundamentally is this thing, the gravitational force? And how is it that objects somehow have this power for things? Um, I think this real, the, 
And I think if we think about, uh, if we recall that this, these particles moving around in space that they thought about in the 19th century, they didn't just you know, sort of bounce off each other. They had these weird interactions through gravity and electromagnetism at a distance. I'm thinking there's something a little bit more mysterious here. I mean, you might actually think, if we think about it, even just bouncing off each other is kind of mysterious. Why do you do that? Why don't they do something else? But there's something really, you know, we see this, I think there is a kind of puzzle here. Um, but we've got great math, and it works. And the math works really well and gives good predictions. And we think it gets at something in the reality, but we don't quite know what's going on. And then we have uh, infamously sort of in the 20th century of quantum mechanics, where we've got, again, great math, uh, make great predictions, we can make great predictions, but we just don't know what the things that we're talking about are, what the different mathematical terms stand for. Just as kind of a really Newton's theory, we didn't really know what F stood for. What is a force? It's like a deep philosophical question. So in quantum mechanics, we can say, you know, what the probabilities are, how to predict them, for the probabilities of observation, but we don't know what to say. And sort of analogous to Newton's, I don't make hypothesis. There's that famous saying that uh, I think uh, it's been tracked down to, to Merman, uh, shut up and calculate as an approach to quantum mechanics. Just, let's not worry about this stuff. As physicists, physicists don't do that so much now. Actually, a lot of physicists are now much more interested in, in actually what is the, what this stuff means than they were maybe earlier. But we just don't know. We don't. We we know that mathematics that describes it, but sort of we have a kind of mystery in physics as well. And I think here's where. So so this hope of a world that sort of becomes through and through comprehensible to us, I think, uh, I think that's not turned out um, like that in physics. It's not turned out like that in mathematics. And the theists can say, yeah, this is kind of what we would expect in a world created by a mysterium tremendum that fascinates, a fascinating and uh, uh, awesome mystery. Okay, so theists can say these. They can say various things about mathematics. They, they don't have to, but they could say things like, with Augustine, that it's true because it describes ideas in the mind of God, that's knowable because God creates it, that it's beautiful because it reflects God's beauty, that it's useful because it applies to the world created by someone who loves it. Um, and they can say that logic describes the power of God. There's a way in which theism actually then answers a lot of interesting questions about the nature of mathematics and its relation to the world. So in a way, so theism is itself a a theory that explains a lot about mathematics and physics. A theory that explains much is likely to be true. So probably there is a God. This is kind of, they compare Leibniz because Leibniz made a, an argument somewhat along these lines from mathematics to God. Thank you. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, if anyone has any questions, feel free to go ahead and ask. Two questions. The first one is with your characterization of Gödel's theorems. So, yeah. on your view, do you think God can know all of the true statements that follow from piano arithmetic? Can God know undecidable sentences? And then the second question is: If mathematics and theology have uh, a connection, 
and theism is the ground for mathematical truth, which I agree on. What about other traditions that do not subscribe to a certain, like Christian worldview, like, I don't know, Protestantism, Judaism? Because I can think of a lot of mathematicians that are both of those. Yeah. Well, the first one. So I want uh, I don't know. I actually don't know how much I want to say. You know, God knows as much mathematics as there is mathematics. He knows the true statements because otherwise he's not constrained by logic. He, but I don't know how much mathematics there is. It might be that not everything that is formulable in the language of arithmetic has a truth value. That wouldn't surprise me if that turned out to be right. I'm inclined to think that all the sigma zero one sentences have truth value because those are sentences that are basically about what is provable from what. And those are not also, you can't formally decide those. But So I think uh, I'm inclined to think there is an objective truth value about uh, first order logic formula validity, basically. That much minimally. Um, and that is enough, I think, to not have logicism. But uh, maybe more. Maybe it is. Maybe all. The, maybe every sentence in the language of arithmetic has a truth value, and God knows it. I, that would not surprise me. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So, but you know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think this is like deep and difficult philosophical questions, and I want to be sort of cautious. Um, Secondly, the second thing was, what about, you know, sort of, well, uh, non-Catholic, I guess, uh, mathematicians. Just to clarify, like, if you are outside yeah. of God's grace, yeah. how can you know certain aspects of God's mind? Well, you do, well, you don't know them, you may not know them under the description God's mind. I mean, think about this. The ancient Greeks knew about knew that knew things about uh, average kinetic energy in solids. They just didn't formulate it this way, and they just called it heat. Right? But heat, in fact, is something like you know, a, a, a kinetic energy of molecules. So, in a way, they, whenever anybody else, uh, anybody's been talking about heat throughout history, they've been talking about the kinetic energy of molecules. But lots of people who have done that have never heard of a molecule. And I th likewise, you know, people who've been talking, drinking water and talking about water um, for as long as humans have been talking about anything, but they, they had no idea that they're talking about H2O. So, I, so that's, I guess, my answer is that all the mathematicians are talking about the mind of God and thinking about the mind of God. They just don't know that that's what they're thinking and talking about. And that's fine, because we all the time talk about things where we don't know more fundamentally what it is. We, all of us are in that position with respect to some things. When I talk of electrons, I'm like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wonder, um, you know, and I'd be curious, to what degree this applies or doesn't apply to the various beautiful, mathematically beautiful physical equations that you gave earlier. The role that we might think the constants present in some of those yeah. equations play philosophically. So we might think, for instance, something like the universal gravitational constant yeah. might be considered as reverse engineered so as to give 
the beautiful mathematical expression with r squared the denominator. Similarly, I mean, we might think something similar for the Platten constant, but I think that might appear independently in other places to motivate it. But I'd wonder what you would think to a line of reasoning that says, well, of course, a lot of these beautiful physical theories um, are just that, mathematically beautiful, but in the sense because in many cases we've introduced constants to make them have the uh, right mathematical appearance. Well, you can talk about the law of gravitation without talking of the constant as such, right? Mm -hmm. you, can say, you can say gravitational force is inversely proportional to the square of the distance mm -hmm. and directly proportional to the, uh, to the masses. Um, and then you're not mentioned. And regardless of what the constant is, that's still going to be true. Right. And if it was a different law, just you couldn't make it be the, like that by just changing the constant. Right? You can't just reverse engineer a different law and make it fit by just changing a constant. Now, sometimes you can, you know, tweak a constant in a certain area, you'll get sort of approximate truth because, you know, sort of, Right, so deep insight at some point, right, that, that people make in the sciences, right, is everything is linear on a, if you vary things slightly enough, right, so then you can always just vary constantly, and make things line up, different theories line up, but only in a very limited range, right. So yeah, you could, if, if you had, if we had an inverse uh, seventh power law of gravity, you could, I guess, choose a constant so that it would look like an inverse square law in a very narrow range of distances, say. You could do that, but uh, it's uh, but we've presumably looked at it in a broader <coughs> range for that. Would be doable. There, the, there is an issue there, right? Sort of on this kind of aesthetics first view of science. What, what, what role we we make up the constants? I kind of thought that might be something you're asking because a lot of physicists feel like these constants are kind of ugly things, and they would be nice if we could get rid of them. Uh, and there's been like, you know, people trying to, you know, is there, is there a way of getting the fine structure constant into, in terms of simpler things? And, uh, yeah, and I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I think in the end, uh, you know, this is, there is a way in which on this Galilean view of things, what, what, the project of science to reverse engineer what God is up to in creating the world. And maybe part of that reverse engineering is, well, look, Yes, but God is presumably not just concerned with mathematical beauty and simplicity. There are other concerns, such as, for example, that there be beings other than himself that appreciate this mathematical beauty. And that might, you know, it might be that uh, that requires laws that have certain parameters that need tuning or something like that. So just to be clear, in the case, for instance, of universal gravitation, it's merely that there's an inverse square relationship, which will constitute the yeah. I think that, that, that's where the simplicity lies. That there, or you could put it as, there exists a constant, G, such that this is true. That's the beautiful thing. Thank you. Okay. Uh, my question is, how certain are you that Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there was a Pythagorean god. Um, yeah, I mean the Pythagorean story is a, is an alternative uh, story about a lot of this, right? It's it's a story that, and it's a story that still some physicists try to have. That the reason the mathematics works so well is because the world is 
actually literally built out of mathematics. We literally are mathematical objects. I think this is nuts, uh, but but it's but it's possible. Uh, but but like so, but the more uh, but but it's you know we can we can discuss could try to come up. There there are I think reasons to doubt this. I think it naturally leads to a view in which all possible worlds uh, exist, sort of fully, really. Um, and I think, given that some of them are going to be actually, the, most of them are in some, in some sense, most of them are going to be super messy. I think we would then be surprised that we actually have as much elegance as we do. Um, okay, but let's go back to the question about Islam and Judaism. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't think this gives you, what, what I said gives anything uh, that Jews and Muslims uh, will be un, should be unhappy with. Um, I assume that the reason, for instance, Melzak thought that it was Christianity that was important was not because Christianity was relevantly different from Judaism or Islam in this in regard to God and his relationship to mathematics. It's just that, as a matter of fact, Christianity was the it was a sort of dominant historical force at, in the right time and the right place. But it could just as well have been Islam or Judaism as far as the relationship to mathematics was concerned. So I can't see a significant difference. Maybe there's like a voice. Okay, I think that's right with Judaism. With Islam, I'm one thing that gives me slight hesitance here is that um, God seems to kind of gloat in the Quran at times about how he's good at deceiving people. And that makes one, you know, do, do we, if we think the world's made by God like that, how confident should we be that we're getting at the truth? So maybe Islam might be a little bit more tricky, but you know it depends how how you read those texts, and maybe you only read that as maybe God only does this to the wicked or something, and so as long as we stay upright, we we, we don't have to worry about that. But yeah, generally speaking, I, I'm inclined to think that there's all the all the monotheistic religions can say something very similar here. Yeah, Philo of Alexandria. And a lot of modern mathematics was developed by Muslims. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually interested in this claim about mathematical objects and sort of the, uh, things understood in the mind of God. And a couple of ways to ask this question. Um, let me start with what I think is the simplest. Uh, what does this account do with um, non-Euclidean geometries, right? Because you've got this, like one of the things you're saying is especially elegant, right? Is that, um, say, the interior angles of a triangle have a measure of two yeah. angles. Um, but now we have these at least self-consistent systems of geometry where that's not the same, or that's not the case, rather. Yeah. So why do we... What makes us confident that God's conception of those mathematical objects must be Euclidean? Well, I don't think God's conception, we have reason to think, is Euclidean. I mean, I kind of think God like, sort of sees things from all the possible points of view. And, and uh, the Euclidean point of view is, I guess, one of them. Um, yeah, I don't actually know that I would say that... Uh, Euclidean geometry is how much more beautiful it is than the non-Euclidean geometry. I mean, there's a sense in which it's got a kind of that simplifying assumption in the parallel postulate, which does imply things about the triangles and things like that. 
Um, but there's a kind of beautiful diversity in, in non-Euclidean geometry that you get a, 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 great, uh, a greater diversity of structures possible. And they're all also Euclidean uh, locally or approximately Euclidean. You zoom in on a non-Euclidean space, it behaves like a Euclidean space approximately. And the more you zoom in, the closer it is to that. Um, I think the theory of the non-Euclidean spaces is a, is a lovely theory, um, but I mean, I think there would be a, it might be that it would have been kind of nice if the world turned out to be Euclidean, um, but the non-Euclidean way has a kind of unification to it that we don't, we wouldn't have gotten on the Euclidean way, namely, there's a way in which not Einstein's theory kind of it maybe has, it helps with that mystery that um, uh, Newton didn't want to f uh, to make hypotheses about, which is why you know we've got this kind of gravity stuff. And and according to Einstein, the gravitational field is nothing but the curvature of space. And so you can kind of instead of, in the, so for Newton you you have to have like the space and this geometry, and then over and beyond that you've got the gravitational field. So the mathematics of the space is simpler and more elegant, but the price of that is you've got this separate force. Einstein's theory has, uh, makes that to be much more basically the same thing, at least so Einstein says. That's kind of cool. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So, please, because I don't know if this is some questions, when looking at and if you're building up to the definition of mathematical, you, you use examples so that things are efficient or simple or complete things which tend to encapsulate more and more and describe more and more or are better and better at um, establishing a causal relationship between things. And I wonder if, if kind of this, this idea of the mathematics with respect to God could be collapsed to causality in general. That is to say, when we talk about science, when we talk about religion, you are essentially speaking about the study of causality, that every religion does in its essence seek to describe why things are the way that they are. All science, when you really look at it, whether you're a biologist or a physicist or a mathematician, you're always looking to answer that why question. Uh, the proliferation of random five theories and supersymmetry physics, for instance, it all does tend towards a kind of causal desire. And when I look at it, you posted there about St. Thomas's observation that to study logic is to study the mind of God. One wonders, you know, what, what does logic and the mind of God kind of have in common aside from this sort of just um, structuralist way of talking about the world or saying, and both are really talking about causality. You know, when you build a proof, for instance, or you engage in logic, what are you doing if not establishing causal steps to get from given to quote And I, I wonder if there's if there's really what the beauty that comes out of so much of the stuff we find beautiful because it reaches towards a singular cause. Why, as you said, the atheist who ignores religion comes off the branch that he sits upon. It, it's undeniable that, that each person who asks a question in science is really asking a why question. And ultimately, all these why questions lead toward a singular cause, an unmoved mover, uh, an uncaused cause, if you will. And so I wonder if, if mathematics is, is 
kind of a way that bridge towards understanding that really what we do in mathematics and 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 understanding beauty and in religion itself is really all an exercise in getting at the first cause. You know, why are we doing more and more and deeper and deeper science into why this molecule interacts with that or what, if not to understand yeah. the foremost cause of all things. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is a Thomistic Institute talk, and this sounds very Thomistic in Sorry. a way, in a way, right? Um, right. So Thomas has this distinction between uh, curiositas, which you might try to translate as curiosity, but it's probably not quite accurate, and and uh, studiositas, studiousness, which maybe is a little more accurate. Um, and the difference is that in curiosity, in the bad kind of curiosity, you're just um, wanting to know more and more facts. Uh, whereas in studiousness, the, the virtue that the mind is in, in, sorry, the virtue of intellectual investigation, you're trying to put things together into an explanatory framework, which gives you an understanding of things and how they hang together explanatorily and ultimately are related to the first cause. So, yeah, so this, this is very Thomistic. I, I find this attractive. I'm not... I, I mean, I think this might be right if you take causes the way Thomas and Aristotle do, very broadly. I think if you use causation as uh, modern people tend to, as uh, referring to efficient causation, I think that ends up missing out things. Because you get explanations that are not causal in the efficient sense, like, why is this object hot? because its molecules are moving fast. It's the molecules moving fast are not causing it efficiently to become hot. Rather, its heat is or is constituted by or by the motion. And so it's still an answer to the why question, but sort of not of the same kind of causal sense. And I don't, I don't know what to say about explanation in mathematics, actually. That, that I'm not sure what to say. This is a sort of controversial topic. Is how much sometimes we feel like we know why something in mathematics is true when we've given a proof. Sometimes we give a proof and we still don't know why it's true. We've got great evidence that it's true, conclusive evidence that's true, but we still feel like we don't really know why. Sometimes the two go, don't go together. Even like I had, I in my math dissertation, I proved this theorem, and I had a really highly intuitive idea of why it's true. And then I had a proof. A proof had made no, there, there, there seemed to be no con direct connection. The proof was just a bunch of messy linear algebra and it just worked out. But then I had this beautiful insight as to why it's true, but I couldn't get a proof that captured that at all. Yeah, yeah well, the, the, the answer is probably just my limitations, right? <laughs> well, it could be my insight was wrong too. Um, but, it, but, but there, there's like these, these proofs uh, sometimes don't really give you an insight into why the thing is true. And sometimes it's because they're long and messy. Sometimes they might be actually short, but you still feel like you don't know why it's true. It just kind of feels like it's, been a, it's a trick. It's a clever trick, but you still don't know why it's true. But you, you can tell that the trick works. I mean, I feel like they're kind of a bit like that about the proof that there are infinitely many prime numbers. The proof's beautiful. It's a nice trick, but what you kind of want, and we don't have, I think, is like some kind of procedure where you have one prime number, you give, give me the next one. If we had that, then we kind of really understand why there are infinitely many prime numbers. 
maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It's just constructivism. <laughs> be nice. Yeah. So oh, I have two questions. So uh, firstly, do you think that the rise of um, mathematics during the scientific revolution led to a decline in Aristotelian philosophy of science? So I, I, I guess, I mean, I don't, so they, they weren't true, right? They were false. Uh, the, so they're taking the question back to front. Um, yeah, should we be confident of the theories or should we just think they're unlikely to be true? Um, okay, that's a great question. I'm not a, I, let me, let me see what I want to say. Um, it's still a fact that uh, Einsteinian uh, gravity in the right kind of limit approximates Newtonian gravity rather than Prussian gravity with, the, with that weird exponent I had. That's what you get in the limit, is, is you get the exponent too, and not that messy one. So, so there's a kind of, the simplicity is still there, uh, buried in a more uh, sort of, or embedded in a deeper in a in a deeper theory. So I think it, it's not entirely disproved. It's still true in a limited limiting case. Um, the other thing I guess I want to say about that is that um, whether true or not, just ask yourself this question. What, which of those two theories of gravity would have been a more reasonable one to believe at that time? So you might think, okay, you might be somewhat skeptical. I think we probably don't really have the truth yet. We, we're so early on. The scientific revolution's only got run up, you know, for like, like 200 years or something in Newton's time. And so, you know, we really shouldn't be very confident that it is GM and prime over R squared. But you know what? It might be. Maybe it's like the chance of that is maybe one in ten that we've already got it. What is the chance that Proust's theory of gravity is true? Is that one in ten? Would that you have been one in ten in Newton's time? Obviously not, because right. I mean, you could see why why not actually, right? Because Proust's theory has nothing going on going for it over and beyond a variant, beyond a dozen variant theories where this number is just slightly different, right? You've got like thousands of theories that fit the data as well, way more than that, infinitely many, in fact. Um, and they're all like just as ugly as this one. Well, the, and so I think when we want to say Newton's theory, yeah, if I left there, I don't know, I might think, I would probably think it's fairly likely true, but if I was more skeptical about science, I might say it's maybe like one in 10. But this one, this one is way, way worse than one in 10. Okay. Uh, that's the what's your second one. What is the first? Remind me what the first one was about. Yeah. No, I don't think it had a thing, something to do with mathematics. I think it had to do with division of labor. I think uh, the difference was that once we the Aristotle stuff had to do with uh, was focused on purposes. 
And that's a kind of normative question, how things should be, what they should be, what they're trying to do and what they succeed at. Um, you know, and, and kind of, you know, as a good, uh, actually still was state as a pretty good guide in biology until we had evolution to replace some of that guiding uh, role that it played. Um, but I think it was a division of labor, namely, we decided let's investigate normative questions, how things should be, what they're aiming at, with one set of, you know, what, what, one kind of discipline, we can call it now philosophy or something, in the modern, in the, the 20th, 21st century sense, and then we separately investigate the non-normative stuff, and I think it's just specialization did a lot for us. Specialization also has its limits, right? I mean, we, we're discovering that now with the importance of interdisciplinary stuff.